Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we'll be talking about Utopia. would you define utopia? I feel like utopia is a way of thinking about who you are and thinking about your place in the world. The thing that really stands out about utopia to me is it is putting your desires in the context of society. It's not like thinking about what you desire for yourself. It's like thinking about what you desire for the world. Because to me, when you think of utopia and the ways that utopia is commonly framed, it's usually about society as a whole. Ways that you imagine a collective or ways that you imagine a society functioning in an ideal type of way and not so much having an ideal life in your current set of circumstances. It's about you in a broader context of a high-functioning society. And what do you think is utopia? Yeah, I mean, I think utopia is political. You know, I think utopias are political visions that people have. And so for me, when I think about utopia, I think about the importance of sustained creative dissent. I think that utopias are fantasy scapes where people can practice dissent in new ways that allow them to eject from harmful social norms and to begin to reconstruct new ways to interact with other people. So I think for me dissent is an important part of utopia. I think probably futurism too because it seems to me that utopian spaces create the possibility to envision new futures Mm -hmm. and since I do race and gender work I think utopias are political projects that are especially important for disenfranchised people so you're saying utopias are like a way of saying no these present circumstances are absolutely not okay and we need to envision something different how practical do you think that is or does it matter I mean practical to achieve them I think it's practical to, to eject as a form of dissent, to say, this is unacceptable and I'm not participating in this particular way and I'm envisioning something that doesn't fit in the context of our normal environment. I think hyper-practical. I actually think there's a lot of practicality, both in the imagining of new futures, but in also of the creation of new storylines that create possibilities for people to actually change the way that they distribute their emotional or economic labor. So I think about practicality here, I guess, as something that's achievable, and I think utopias actually are achievable. I think they're achievable mostly because I think we misunderstand power. Power is really fluid, and there are lots of opportunities to shift power, even while it's also possible to talk about structures of power that are relatively static. Mm -hmm. So I think utopias create the space to imagine entry points where people can begin to unravel social norms that are 
destructive to their own personal well-being and to the social structure. So I think that it is actually quite practical to eject. I mean, I'm thinking about Fayetteville right now and thinking about, you know, the anti-discrimination, non-discrimination ordinance debate that's happening here in Arkansas and thinking about how those legal conversations and social conversations and ethical conversations that are happening at the municipal level are actually utopian conversations that are creating more space for people to live differently in the South. So I actually think there's there's practicality to it. I just think that the practicality doesn't fall into neoliberal capitalist paradigm. It just works in, in the opposite mm-hmm. direction of that. But I think it's highly practical. Yeah, like it's useful for people to use as a way to express who they are and what they want for themselves. And I think it's practical in the sense that it's a way to change the conversation. It's a way to create art and spread information. Talking about your desires and structuring them in a particular way to talk about how they can be political and how they're important because they can change how you think about the world and society. In the debate community, we talk about counterfactuals, about asking the question, what if, and you change a variable in a political circumstance to understand how that that changed variable influences the outcome of your thought process. And, and in communication, we talk about groupthink, which is what happens when people all have the same idea about how you know a problem should be solved and they just reinforce each other rather than coming up with alternative potential solutions. And I think utopianism and counterfactuals are ways of overcoming groupthink in a culture that is so hell-bent on being homogenous (laughs) and where there's so much oppressive ideology, especially here in the South, whether it's white supremacy or homophobia or sexism or heterosexism or whatever, um, I feel like utopianism and and counterfactuals and thinking through alternative um, solutions to political problems is an exercise we don't practice enough. And we don't practice it enough, and you see that even legislatively as you have legislative bodies passing laws that mandate factually inaccurate sexual health information or factually inaccurate history book material. I mean, there is, or, or Rick Scott banning the term climate change from political debates in the Florida legislature. I mean, all of those are such anti-intellectual, anti-utopian moves. They're so neoliberal. They're all about calcifying capitalism that I think more so now than ever utopia becomes a really important political investment for um, oppressed people. So how do you think that we can practice utopia in a way that allows us to have progress and to get out of the kind of strict narratives that define our political lives and even our social lives? Well, you were talking about the relationship between utopia and art. You know, mm-hmm. and I think utopia, utopia is highly connected to the arts because it's in the arts where you can create alternative worlds that help you work through problems that can't be discussed openly now. So, you know, like the whole genres of fantasy and fi- science fiction exist to talk through political problems in alternative world spaces. And that's the skill set that we need to engage in politics today so I think there's no way to do it without art, especially fiction. So it's certainly in my classes I've taught, you know, lots and lots over the years of, um, 
of utopian and dystopian novels as a way of thinking through alternative ways of being because my students can't think of alternative models of education or alternative models of mm -hmm. democracy or alternative models of the arrangement of labor, you know. They can't, they, they're limited. It's a failure of imagination. And I think utopia at its best is a tool to help us expand our imaginations so we can come closer and closer and closer into, to bring our desires into fruition individually and as a culture. I know that a lot of people think that investing in things like that, you know, science fiction, fantasy, and other types of art that depict utopias that seem extreme or beyond the scope of possibility is impractical. It's a type of escapism. Which I know that neither of us agree with. No. <laughs> we, we think that's a, a ridiculous claim. <laughs> but I wonder what it is about utopia that makes people say that it's impractical or that it's escapism. But it's a failure of imagination. They can't, they can't mm. create the connections between the reality that they're living and possible futures that don't necessarily look like their day-to-day -day lives. That's the disconnect there. I think that's because utopia is a confrontation with day-to-day -day life. Say the, that again. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, utopia is a way of rejecting, like you said, ejecting and rejecting your present circumstances and saying there are different ways to think about myself. There are different ways to think about the world that have nothing to do with what's expected of me, how we normally organize our lives. And in fact, how we normally organize our lives is in some ways completely limiting and even imprisoning. You know, I said a utopia is a dissent, but your formulation of utopia as confrontation is different and smart because I feel like it forces us to recognize that utopias demand a kind of vulnerability and introspection. And maybe that's what I'm getting at when I'm thinking about, you know, the legislatures railroading this legislation through that mandates anti-factual, you know, information, mm -hmm. scientifically inaccurate information. They themselves are trying to create a utopia where their ideology rules and they're trying to delimit or remove facts from mm -hmm. it so that they can bring their own utopia into fruition, even though a bunch of us are not on board with it. And I feel like you're right, that utopia is a confrontation that demands a high amount of introspection and vulnerability and consensus building. To me, it's like a refusal to just accept the world at face value or accept that what is possibly even factual. Well, in a lot of cases, it doesn't have to be factual. It could just be like what we take as Norm. given norms. Yeah, It's a refusal to accept that as given and like a way of saying... Maybe fact is a fiction that we're all collectively subscribing to. Obviously, that's not the case in a lot of clear scientific cases, but it is a way of organizing your thoughts so that you don't have to accept that everything, like how we've grown up and the things that are normative, they don't have to be limiting to your life. The fact is, is that utopia cuts both ways. So there are utopian fantasies, whether they're dispensationalist, like premillennial, you know, dispensationalist, apocalyptic utopias, or if they're leftist utopias. I mean, there are utopias that come in lots of shades of non-normative. And so I think that the political challenge is that people who are entrenched in their ideologies 
refuse to or can't see the development and implementation of utopian strategies on either side, which seems to be a gross limitation, is to ignite, you know, the left has this problem all the time. They can't understand why there are these evangelical ideations about what the world should look like, and they refuse to see that there are a lot of people that want to participate in a utopia that they're limited out of. And I think that that is just a gross lapse on their part to be able to see that not everybody's utopias match up, right? That that exercise is a function of power. It's definitely a function of power when the legislators are railroading this kind of legislation, this anti-factual legislation through. That's an exercise in power. But I think that, you know, for me, I'm interested in that side, but I'm also interested inside of the the imaginings of the powerless, Mm -hmm. you know? Because they have different imageries, but they also have different goals. Mm-hmm. One is to restore power and one's consolidate power. And those aren't the same goal. I, th- I guess it's hard for me to frame some of what's happening politically in terms of utopia. Because in my like perspective of the world, it seems dystopian. And it seems like there's a very thin line between utopia and dystopia. And I think what's happening on the right, uh, what we've been discussing, is more like dystopian. It's like pointing out problems, things that they consider to be problems and course correcting, which to me isn't, doesn't seem utopian. Maybe. I don't know, except that it's connected to things like the rapture. The rapture seems highly utopian to me. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Possibly. But at the same time, I think it's like, that is a kind of, escapism it's like considering the world as imperfect i guess that is utopian it is like utopian. thinking about I mean, your world as imperfect and like imagining it's not like everybody buys into the utopian longings or visions at the same degree and it's not like everybody exerts the same kind of agency even if they're imagining or longing for the same kind of utopia so I don't think that there's any distinction, really, between the right's longings and the left's longings. I think the content's different, but I think the process is probably the same. I think escapism can be part of utopian longing. I just don't think it's a necessary precondition. I don't think it's intrinsic. I don't think escapism is a defining feature of utopianism. It's just something that may or may not occur around it. What do you think about the relationship between utopia and capitalism? Like, are there higher drives to create utopias under a neoliberal capitalist statist model? Well, I think capitalism is so concerned with practical and your, like, quotidian day-to-day. Utopia doesn't really exist within capitalism. Utopia is a way to, like, you know, broaden your scope, zoom out and see that what you're doing day-to-day, what you think when you wake up in the morning you're doing because it's practical and it makes sense in the course of your life. You zoom out and you're like, okay, well, maybe it doesn't have to be that way. Utopia is a way of recognizing that in a lot of ways what you do because capitalism demands it Mm -hmm. is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we were thinking about this episode, I was thinking a lot about how utopia is also the struggle against deprivation. 
and about how cultural deprivation is a direct result of the power of capitalism and white supremacy and heteropatriarchy. And I was thinking a lot about Lauren Berlant's wonderful book, The Female Complaint, and she's talking about romantic culture and sentiment, sentimentality and about how, you know, women get trapped in marriages, and men do too, and they are willing to put up with tremendous degrees of sexual and emotional and social deprivation if only they get a present, a great present at Christmas or on their birthday. And so their entire emotional life is wound around and wedded to these instances of capitalist exploitation. They become repositories of all of their desires that are unmet, in their marriage. And while that's a micro level example, and I think a potent one for feminists, I think if you zoom out to the macro level, you think about how many people are just running on the hamster wheel, trying to, to catch some sort of um, materialist ring at the end. And they can't even see that they're just running, running, mm -hmm. running on the hamster wheel, being completely and totally deprived of sociality or intimacy or connection or play or any of the other topics that we've been talking about so far on the podcast. I mean, capitalism has totally structured people's desires so that they think what they need is connected to the capitalist system, that what they should be doing contributes to the world in that limiting sense in a reproductive way. The fact that you, you know, should get married and have like a long-term monogamous relationship and have children and have a productive job. But I think utopia is a way of saying like that's kind of a form of imprisonment. This is something that you've been conditioned. Conditioned, yeah, to think is a successful, like happy life. But really you just have this very limiting view of the world and of how people should behave and how you should be and what you should do. And utopia is a way to be like, you know, this this is all just kind of a fiction. It's a construction that we've created for ourselves. And that's really what capitalism is as well. And it kind of gives you a little freedom to imagine yourself in different settings. And I, th I think of Charlotte Perkins Gilman, you know, <laughs> uh -huh. and her writing a lot yeah, when I think of this especially the yellow wallpaper, but also, I mean, her, her land, land is, is obviously yeah. a utopia, but I also think the yellow wallpaper is kind of a utopian piece of writing as well, because she becomes something that can escape, even if it's in her own head and outwardly seems crazy. And even to the reader, in some cases, the protagonist in that story seems crazy, but I, it kind of like is a flip. It's a, she flips and lets you kind of see that this woman has been imprisoned by her husband and you're also imprisoned in thinking that she's crazy. Like you're also a part of that general construct. I love that <clears throat> Charlotte Perkins Gilman's Yellow Wallpaper. I love Herland. I also love Marge Piercy's Woman on the Edge of Time, which is a book that I continue to read and reread years and years later because it's such a smart dystopian utopian novels like post-apocalyptic but we're inside of Connie and her you know brown oppressed body and we're time traveling and we're thinking about you know futurity and reproductive justice and environmentalism and you know and themes that I think really resonate even today because there's still so much 
cultural deprivation and there's people are are whether they're deprived of water in California because of drought or they're deprived of reproductive access because they live in the Rio Grande Valley and the you know the Texas legislature has basically undermined reproductive access in Texas or you know just like the constant material and social deprivation drives people into spaces where they have to imagine all of these barriers away. I mean, I think there's a real connection between utopia and, and the impulse towards freedom, which for me makes it a liberatory discourse. I'm always going to be attracted to that relationship between utopian and dystopianism because they, they're discourses that are ultimately about power and freedom. I think there's a lot of freedom in recognizing that there's types of barriers, you know, and there has previously been, you know, barriers to like, being publicly transsexual and being publicly queer that are kind of now fading away because people have been imagining themselves in public spaces and being open about their sexuality, even though it was completely outside of the scope of the normal structure, heteronormative structure and power structure. I mean, the most interesting thing about the big trans or the first big national trans survey is that they left open a space for people to fill in their own description about their gender. And they had over 250 unique descriptors about how people identified their gender. And if that's not utopian, I don't really know what is. I mean, to have 250 markers outside of male and female as a way of understanding your gender identity, that's tremendous. Absolutely. That's tremendous political potential there. Especially when most people think that gender is so binary. And the difference between two and 250, like... Statistically significant. (laughs) That opens up possibilities in so many other spaces, though. What else are we thinking of as binary or as given or in this really limited way that has so many other possibilities? And that, to me, is why, like, utopianism is practical, but it's also, like, beyond practical. Because there's a certain practicality to to categorizing things. Um, But... It doesn't, it's not practical in the sense that it is good for people. There's a difference between what's practical for capitalism and for patriarchy and that and what's practical for a utopia, which is letting go of limitations and recognizing uh, plural possibilities. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was talking about Berlant's work, which obviously I'm heavily indebted to. I write a lot about feelings and affect and and I I when you're when I hear you talking about that and we're talking about cultural deprivation as a direct consequence of capitalism and white supremacy and heteropatriarchy, I am thinking about romance and the relationship between romance and utopia. Like romance as a genre of mm-hmm. novels and romantic comedies as a genre of film and romance itself as a discourse of utopia dystopia. I mean, Berlant writes a lot about how it's sort of ridiculous that we pursue romance and sentimentality when we know it fails. Like all of the examples of romance in our culture are actually examples of failure, of failure Mm -hmm. to connect. So what do you think about romance as a utopian discourse? Yeah. When we were talking earlier about, um, yeah, Gilman and Berlin. Also, like, in that category, I think of uh, Erica Young. Oh, yeah. And how she uses romance as a type of utopia as, like, 
a way to frame her realization um, that she doesn't fit within the normal um, scriptures of society and her exploration of that through a relationship with like a new and exciting person who like is rough around the edges but makes her feel alive you know so I definitely think romance has that potential and not just in like the sense of relationship but in the sense of engaging with your environment because to me like um, utopia is kind of a counterpoint to nihilism and nihilism is like a withdrawing from your environment and romance and um, utopia are like about engaging utopia doesn't have to be about engaging it's about engaging with your desires and not with your current worlds and to me romance is about engaging with like the ideal parts of your world that can come with you you Mm. know into your utopia like the parts that are right or almost right that you can use to like get through your quotidian bullshit and like help transform you or you know help transcend with you to your utopia it's the stuff you want to take with you and that's important because you need like some things to like you don't want to like eject entirely right you need some things to ground you in your life and make you happy in your life um, that you can love to help you manage your the stuff that you have to deal with. I guess I'm just thinking, like, to what extent are romance and love constructions of capital? I know in future podcasts we're going to talk about optimism and pessimism. So you have a very optimistic take on romance and love as discourses that transcend space and time and that are that have positive valences and that are, you know, useful constructs. But mm-hmm. I wonder mostly because I tend towards pessimism <laughs> about how romance and love are not you I mean they they might be utopian but are they failures? Are they failures of utopia? Well, they are insofar as how you want to use romance and love to, like, advance certain things. Like, if you are thinking about the practicality of romance and, like, the practicality of love and how they advance certain a certain lifestyle or uh, a certain, like, outward appearance that you can have for other people then yeah i mean there's constructed things about that but there i think ways of loving and engaging that to me are pretty separate Hmm. and most i mean i imagine a lot of people don't get to that i don't know uh, there's like some types of institutionalized romance you know i do um and the kinds that are institutionalized probably aren't utopian but like the romance part it's the romance part though that i think is the oh the parts where you have to you expect certain things and you enact roles associate roles yeah yeah i i guess i don't think about romance in that way because i don't like practice it that practice way. it that way right, yeah right. my like the things that turn me on about people and excite me about people and like 
determine the way that I love are have nothing to do with gifts and nothing to do with how someone can like help me in any particular way. It used to be. I used to like love people for how much they loved me and love people because they like were certain had a certain amount of social power or did certain things that I, made me feel a certain way that I like saw people feeling on TV or something. But I mean, you know, on here at Lean Back, we think a lot about self-help as a, as a problematic genre. And it seems to me that self-help discourse is all about the, you know, sort of aggrandizing or promoting the promise of love as something that somebody can go out and read their way into or buy their way into or and it sort of assumes that problems in love or problems with the self can just be solved with like some tweaking of your internal mechanisms you know uh and in that way you can then further sustain intimacy or desire and it becomes super coherent and um and i i don't think that i I agree with that. I think that's why I am drawn to lean back because I feel like it's only through leaning back can you reframe your relationship with capitalism and all of its commodities. And one of those commodities is definitely love and romance. And it's like it's from leaning back that you create the space and the distance to be able to, you know, assess how problematic self-help as a genre is. I mean, absolutely. You get a perspective about how self-help is, like, largely about the individual. It's self, self-help. Self. Yeah. And it, I mean, first of all, places the onus of responsibility on you, even though, like, the entire system is kind of destructive. So leaning back definitely, like, allows you to place frustration and disappointment and blame on something other than yourself. Um, and that's uh, totally useful. But leaning back also reframes love. Yeah, it helps you pull back from that love as an individual thing because love in a lot of ways can be collective. Once you realize that you can love multiple people in 250 different ways instead of two different ways, that's enormous. And that like totally frees up a ton of constructive space. And it also breaks down that process of idealization. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, because it's the idealization that creates static narratives about romance and love, and that orders monogamy and patriarchy mm-hmm. and all of the relationships between affective and economic labor. So there's maybe a role of the listener or the speaker in cultivating a more cynical perspective, and that perhaps utopianism is about maintaining the role of the sort of cynic about contemporary yeah, conditions. I like that contrast between idealization and utopia. Because I think if you like just do a cursory overview of what you think utopia is, you might equate utopia with an idealism. But I think utopia requires cynicism and it requires you to understand how your ideals are shaped by your environment. And I think it also, at its best, demands a rejection of sentimentality. 
I don't know. I was saying to a friend the other day that I just, I reject sentimentality almost totally. <laughs> um, especially since I, I do write and read so much about feelings. I want more than sentiments, you know? I want experience. I want hyper-presentism. I want utopia. I want ec ecstasy. You know, I want alternative models of longing that aren't about the idealization of these longings that are really about consolidating capitalist power, mm -hmm. you know? I think about engagement. That's the word yeah. I typically use yeah. as like an alternative to sentimentality is like feeling present. And I know that gets co-opted a lot by even people who are doing like team building exercises at uh, a giant corporation uh, like yeah. Walmart, they'll be like, we need to be more present, but that's doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah. I think about engagement as like a form of love, getting really involved in where you are and who you're with. And to me, that's separate from capitalism, engaging with the world and not with a really easy type of consumer lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, for me, I feel like the best part of hyperpresentism is that it can't conceal failure. So when you are totally present with somebody for the awkward and the weird and the disjointed and the missteps and mishaps, I feel like that's where I feel like that's where intimacy happens. I feel like that's the part that I'm interested in. And I feel like idealization removes the possibility of seeing failure or flaws, mm -hmm. which just seems like delusional to me. <laughs> I don't know why anybody would want to, to make decisions where you can't see all the cracks and the flaws and the failures because those are really useful pieces of data in making any decision about any kind of relationality, you know, whether it's domestic or whether it's corporate or something else entirely. That's interesting because I think that kind of goes back to utopia as it's normally thought about because to me, the a lot of dystopian fiction and dystopian art emphasizes trying to rid the world of imperfections mm -hmm. and hyper-normalizing everyone. So like both of them focus on the collective and a functioning society. But to me, utopia requires that you understand and like recognize people's flaws and absorb that into a functioning society. And that requires like understanding that people are different. There are 250 types of genders but not just 250, that's even limiting. That there are millions of different, every person is a, a different color and every person's at a different place on the spectrum. And you have to absorb all of that in a high functioning society. Whereas like a dystopia to me is normalizing everyone so that society functions really well. So putting everyone into a box because that's easier to control. Yeah. I mean, my favorite dystopian novel is clearly The Handmaid's Tale which is another book that I come to and read over and over and over again. I love Margaret Atwood. I love mm -hmm. her writings. I think she's super smart. And that book is so apropos because controlling, you know, reproduction is a way that consolidates power extremely efficiently. And it's something we should be hyper, hyper aware of as a strategy of destroying um, female agency in particular, the agency of reproductive bodies. 
And I think there are a lot of lessons there for how we understand utopia as a political project and dystopian novels as places for creative mm-hmm. political dissent. Yeah, utopia to me is a place where everyone has agency, which is fairly equally distributed. <laughs> Ideally, yeah. yeah. What? It's utopia. Utopia, yes. What do you think about leaning back um, and the practice of leaning back that allows you to inhabit utopian spaces or utopian ideas, or at least practice utopia? That's a good question. I think that leaning back is good because you can keep more than just one object in your field of vision at a time. And I think utopia as a literary tool or as a philosophical predisposition or as an ideological standpoint is hyper-concerned with multiplicity, like lots of different options that are being considered either comparatively side by side or simultaneously, you know, across lots of different historical spaces. And so I like lean back as a, as a strategy of engaging that dynamism with texts or historical moments or ideological spaces where you're holding more than just one idea in your head at a time, because it's, it's the desire to collapse into one narrow worldview that fascism arises from. And if the goal of utopia is freedom, then I think that that means you have to engage with plurality and difference in a way that encompasses all of it. You know, yeah. Otherwise, it's just, it's just fascist. I know we made part of our principal ideas that leaning back is like creating distance from institutions that damage us. Yes. And I think it's really important to consider how leaning in can bind you to like what's practical and productive and efficient in the economy. And leaning in is a lot that way. Like leaning into a company because it's practical and efficient and leaning back allows you to get into spaces that are like sensual and exciting and fanciful, you know? And I also think if we're if we're talking about utopia as dissent or confrontation, that leaning back is all about confronting the forced normalization of bodies under neoliberal capitalism and is a way for us to think about um, just creating that kind of critical distance with objects of inquiry, whether it's the self or the self in relation to others, or the economy, or, you know, the political, or love, whatever the object of inquiry is, I think leaning back is, creates distance between yourself and the object for uh, just a broader assessment of your relationship to other people and things. I think that distance is, like, the key component in thinking of things as other something other than a means to an end like thinking about things as an end in themselves yeah and i think yeah leaning in on a lot of ways makes you consider people and objects and your what you're doing and who you are and your body as a means to an end and that end uh in that particular framework, having a high-powered career and being considered successful and having a lot of money. 
And I, I also just feel like leaning in is about giving over all of your resources to the corporate entity, you know? And I feel like that's too much to ask. And leaning back says that there are parts of me that you're not entitled to, that I refuse to sacrifice for the corporation or the corporate model, even if it's not, mm-hmm. you know? Or capitalism itself. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are parts of everyone that... No one's entitled to, and that's part of what a utopia is, that everyone everyone has their own thing that makes them take, and that's okay. And I also don't, just don't feel like you can provoke if you're leaning in. If you're leaning in, you're being co-opted. I don't see how you can create provocations or demonstrations of resistance if you're not partially detached. And I think, you know, we were talking... I think you and I privately about um, the model of capitalism we're living under and how it creates increased demands for intimacy because people feel so unfulfilled mm-hmm. and they're spending so many hours working in the workplace and so they need they need high, high, high levels of intimacy in their private lives and they're ill-equipped to actually create the conditions for that intimacy. And so I feel like detachment from those objects that damage us is something that leaning back cultivates that's critical for building utopias. Because I think if you get too close to the object, you have myopia and you can't see outside of it, and that's how groupthink that happens, and that's how failures of imagination happen, and that's why you get segregation and the rich-poor gap and the empathy gap, you know, is that people get too close either to themselves and can't see themselves in relations to others, or they get too close to capitalism and refuse to see how their actions are having deleterious, really negative, horrible effects on others, you know? I wonder if um, if there's anything you think now, what do you think is utopia? Like, what do you imagine now as, like, that you do in your day-to-day, or even, like, that you don't even do, but you imagine being uh, close to utopia? I mean, for my entire life is oriented around justice. Mm-hmm. So if I'm in a room and the goal is something that's not about ju- I'm like, how can we bring justice to the forefront of this conversation, right? Whether it's, you know, a policy change or whether it's access to resources or whether it's the framing of a narrative or whether it's people speaking about, you know, a topic of concern to them. For me, I feel like justice is an orienting term that leads us closer to utopia. So when we decenter profit and decenter, you know, self-promotion and recenter justice, for me, that gets cl- me closer to a utopia that I want to invest mm-hmm. in. So that's that's how I'm driven, like hardwired <laughs> towards justice. Yeah, we have we have different ideas, I think, uh, about, like, what brings us closer to utopia. For me, I think it's laughter mm. and, like, not taking things so seriously. So, I mean, your perspective is decentering the things that are damaging. And for mm-hmm. me, it's, like, commenting on them in a funny way and pointing out or, like, bringing out the ridiculousness of stuff. Oh, yeah. So that it's less damaging. So for me, it's laughter, and that takes me closer. I don't know that we're different. I think we're we're actually super similar there. I think that's what makes us such close friends. But one of my um, college mentors was a guy named Ted Wint, and he wrote this great book called Presidents and Protesters. And the very first college class that really, really struck a nerve in me and created 
a ton of space for utopian imagining was a summer class that I took with him on the rhetoric of the counterculture. And we started with Diogenes, who was a, a cynic. And we thought and read a lot about cynicism. And I encountered Tom Robbins there. And he changed my life because he's a total cynic and a utopian writer. And he's certainly my intellectual guru. And, um, and so for me, I think cynicism is a playful way of engaging with harmful structures. And I think it's a tool that I use. When I think about, and I, and I think laughter is an important orienting discourse in creating utopias. But in terms of like what I think about in terms of discourses of freedom, I think that those are different though, extremely compatible tools, right? Mm -hmm. In reorienting our labor around justice instead of capital. And then a tool to do that is definitely laughter or cynicism to lampoon harmful institutions. A satire functions satire that for way. Sure. I mean, for sure. Satire for sure. a lot of times is dystopian. They yeah take a, they point out a problem and drive it to its extreme. And I mean, satirists do it in a funny way that doesn't take, you know, the institutions or the problems very seriously. But it does draw it out and imagine the alternative. I, you know, I think too a lot about humor. You know, you and I are both heavily invested in comedy as a form of discourse. And I think a lot about satire and about how it's been used by the ruling class and about how much whiteness and masculinity is invested in humor and comedy as strategic resources towards utopian goals, and about how those may or may not be the tools that communities of color or differently abled communities or trans communities might go to as a first resort in imagining their futures. And I think about that especially because I write a lot about Afrofuturism and what it means for black people to write their own way into the future, especially because they're mostly absent from futures discourses. So I think this conversation would be augmented tremendously in thinking through how communities of color or differently able communities or trans communities or whatever, poor communities, um, I don't know that humor would necessarily be the first tool in the toolbox there. Some, I think that that might be a class thing. I mean, I think humor as a commodity is probably a class thing, but everything as a commodity pretty much is. I have a friend who was writing, who has um, autistic children, and she was writing a post, um, I think yesterday... Um, and she was writing about how autism and autism awareness uses the metaphor of the puzzle as the image to communicate the relationship between autistic people and non-autistic people. And she was saying that she hates that because she's a researcher because it doesn't tap into what um, autistic people, especially nonverbal non autistic people, are trying to communicate. And she says, and I'm quoting her here, it's like doing research on illiterate people and concluding that they are a puzzle because we keep using written surveys and coming up empty-handed. And she says with her child, she's the one with the deficit because she hasn't yet figured out how to help her communicate. And I think that, that that's the one thing that I think I really love about utopianism, especially as it interacts with bodies and science, 
is that it demonstrates how normativity is a lie and there is no normal, that's not a real thing, but that we consistently fail to imagine new ways to engage and describe phenomenon that has already been labeled as pathological or non-normal or weird or, you know, whatever. And I think utopia has a tremendous potential to help undermine some of those norms in ways that will be incredibly fruitful in building new worlds for for all kinds of people, you know, and in this case, certainly for autistic people. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.